Can't you sing that better than Mercy Me, I believe. Amen. What a beautiful, what a, what a wonderful time of worship we've had already. Hope you have. Hope you've been caught up in the presence of God as we've worshiped together. You know, when we worship, you know, that is when we really are filled with the Spirit. When we focus on Christ and what He has done and who He is. And when we're caught up with Christ, when we make much of Him, that's when we really worship. I hope you have this morning. Well, we're very excited to see the progress right back here. It's just an exciting time every day. I love to come up and just see what's being done. I I want you to be praying for those four builders because they're working mighty hard. Pray for their safety. Uh, they're working as men I've ever seen from Wisconsin. Who's from Wisconsin in here? Anyone? Okay. Well, they are really workers, and um, we thank God for them and just pray for them. By the way, all four of them are church uh, attenders, I understand. Uh, so if you're out here... You know, let's show them the love of Christ and as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Before we look at God's Word this morning, I would just want to ask you, who are you inviting for Easter? Who are you inviting to come at Easter? Did you realize that people come to church on Easter when they never, ever come to church? And what an opportunity we have to reach out to our Maybe our unchurched or or lost loved ones, neighbors who live next to us, and just invite them. Will you come with? We're going to have some a special service on Easter. Maybe you won't get them here. Don't invite them to seven o'clock, okay? But invite them to the ten fifteen. Remember the times change for Easter, and tell them that you know you want to sit with them. You want to be a part of the service uh, with them. So invite them. I understand that a high percentage of people who are invited to church will actually come to church. So do your part. Just invite. I'm not asking you to do anything else but just to give an invitation for someone that you know, maybe at work, whatever, to come with you to church. And let's fill this place. Let's, let's fill this place so much that the members have to stand in the back so that our visitors can sit in the chairs, okay? So, turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Great passage of Scripture, and I'd like to ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God as it has come after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to them, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you 
and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around they saw no they saw no longer they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we just thank you so much for this wonderful passage that we will be able to expound here today. Lord, we are nothing, you're everything. We cannot even understand your word apart from the Spirit's teaching. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit might illumine our hearts and minds, that we might be able to see the truth that you want to convey to your people here today. And Lord, may we truly leave here different than we, than we came, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in an Easter series on the life of Christ and we are focusing on some of the significant events in our Lord's life. Last week we looked at the temptation of Jesus and we saw that how he was, we saw how he was tempted by the devil after fasting 40 days and how he overcame the onslaught of the devil by standing on the word of God and we saw that we too can overcome sin and temptation and the devil's temptation if we stand firmly on the Word of God. This morning we will focus on an event that is often overlooked, really, but it's very important in the life of Christ, and that is the transfiguration. The transfiguration is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. Now, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's found in each of these gospels. That tells us how important this is in the life of Christ. Each of these Gospels give a different take on it, but of course they were written by three different individuals who saw things differently, but they all convey the same truth of what they saw. And the truth is that even though Jesus is fully man, <clears throat> he is also fully God. God dressed in flesh. God dressed in human flesh. Now I want us to begin by looking at the glory of the Son of God that we see here. I want us to look at the glory of the Son of God. As our text tells us, Jesus led three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain. Tradition tells us that this was Mount Tabor, a small mountain separating Galilee from uh, Samaria. However, more likely it was Mount Hermon that was 9,000 feet high in the far northern part of Galilee. Peter speaks of his experience when he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, we were there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not telling you about something that really didn't happen. I'm telling you about something that we were eyewitnesses of. We saw it on the holy mountain. 
These three disciples were with Jesus during other special times in the life of Christ. Peter, James, and John were the first disciples called by Jesus. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus when he healed Jairus' daughter. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and death. And these same three, Peter, James, and John, are with Jesus on the mountaintop when he was transfigured. They belong to that inner circle of disciples who were especially close to Jesus. Now, it wasn't that Jesus loved them any more than he loved the others. He loved them equally, I'm sure. But maybe they loved him more than the others. They belonged to that inner circle. And Jesus, he was always going off to a solitary place to be along with his Father. And he took these three with him. You know, that solitary place was often a mountaintop, away from the hustle and bustle of life, away from the busyness of life, you might say. And you know, folks, we all need that place, don't we? We need that place. We need a place like that, a solitary place where we can just get away, get along with God, spend time reading His Word, spending time praying, listening to God worshiping Him, glorying in His majesty, just spending time with Him. And let me just ask you, do you have that kind of place? Do you have that kind of place? A quiet place. A quiet time. A place where you can get along with God. Now, the place isn't really important. We can meet God anywhere. The time really is not that important because you can meet God any time. The important thing is meeting Jesus, getting alone and meeting Jesus. Maybe you've heard, if you don't come apart, you will surely come apart. And that's certainly true in the life of a Christian. If you don't come apart, if you don't get along with God, if you don't have that quiet time, if you don't have that time where you spend with God, It's only a matter of time that you will come apart spiritually in your life because we cannot get get away, we cannot do without the spiritual nourishment of the Word of God and spending time with the Lord. In the transfiguration, we see God in human flesh. God in human flesh. Just let that sink in. God in human flesh. Mark simply says, He, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them. Now I want you to look at the word transfigured. It's from the Greek word from which we get our English word metamorphosis. And you know and I know that the word metamorphosis, it speaks of that process of nature in which a caterpillar weaves a cocoon around itself and after a period of time, becomes a beautiful butterfly. And of course, metamorphosis, it means to be changed, to be transformed. It's a radical transformation. Just think, caterpillar into a butterfly, that is a radical transformation. So when Mark says that Jesus was transfigured, it means that he manifested on the outside what he was really like on the inside. He manifested on the outside what he was on the inside. Now, when Jesus came into this world, his divine nature was veiled by his flesh. 
We call that the incarnation. We sing at Christmas time Wesley's beautiful hymn, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity. See, Jesus was born like any other baby. He grew up like any other baby. He lived an ordinary life like any other man, yet without sin, yet without sin. The prophet Isaiah says that when people saw him, there was no beauty that they should desire him, Isaiah 53, verse 2. That simply means he looked like any other man. There was nothing extraordinary about Jesus' outward appearance that really set him off from others, nothing really. He didn't stand out as being particularly impressive in appearance. He looked like any other man. There was no halo over his head. But this Jesus who walked down the dusty roads of Palestine was God of very God. Never forget that. He was and he is the God-man. Veiled in flesh, yes, but the eternal Son of God. Now, something extraordinary happened on the mountaintop that day. Jesus was transfigured. He, he was changed. His countenance changed. Yes, they knew he was Jesus, but there was something different about his countenance. His face shone like the sun. His clothing glistened exceedingly white. No fuller could have gotten it so clean. For one brief moment, the veil of Jesus' flesh was pulled back like a curtain, and his eternal glory shone through. On that mountaintop, Jesus' glory on the inside shone through on the outside. Now, what exactly was taking place on that mountain when Jesus was transfigured? Well, really, Jesus tells us back at verse 1. If you look back at verse 1, it says, these are Jesus' words, Truly, truly, I say unto you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now the question is, who are, who are the some standing here Jesus is talking about? Well, he's talking about Peter, James, and John. Jesus is saying that these three disciples will live to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. How do we know that? Because after three days, he takes Peter, James, and John on a high mountain, and they see exactly what Jesus predicted. What Peter, James, and John saw, they saw a glimpse. They saw a foretaste, you might say. They saw a preview of the glory of Christ when he returns to establish his kingdom on this earth. It was Peter, James, and John it was as if Peter, James, and John were actually present when he comes a second time in glory, riding a white horse to rule and to reign, Revelation chapter 19. In the transformation, we see God in human flesh. But also, I want us to see in the transformation and transfiguration, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They were not alone, Jesus and his three disciples. Verse 4, it says that there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
Two of the great Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah, appears. Now, you know that Moses, the great lawgiver, gave the law to Israel. Elijah, the greatest of all the prophets, no doubt. And the presence of Moses and Elijah signifies that the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. They all point to Jesus. You know, that's why we're doing the gospel project here at church. That's why we do it in Sunday school. Because we're seeing all the way through the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through the entire Old Testament, all of these books point to Jesus Christ. Remember, after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to the Emmaus disciples. And, of course, they didn't recognize him. But remember what Jesus did, beginning with Moses And the prophets, he preached the things concerning himself. From Genesis, he preached himself. From all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets, even the Psalms, he preached concerning himself. Oh, my friend, the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And I think that's why these two men were present with Jesus on that mountain. Also, I think this story tells us or gives us the answer to a question that a lot of Christians have. Will we know one another in heaven? Of course we will. You know, to me, that is really a simple question to answer. Don't we know one another down here? Don't you know your brothers? Don't you know your loved ones down here? Of course. Well, do you think we will know more down here than we will know up there? And I want you to notice that Peter, James, and John, they knew it was Moses and Elijah. And they had never met him. <laughs> I'll say, we're going to know people we've never met. We're going to know that great, great, great grandfather who was a believer in heaven, and we did not even know him. We'll walk up and say, hey, great, 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 great grandfather. I've been waiting all these years, hundreds of years, to meet you. Yes, we will know one another in heaven. Also, these two Old Testament saints went to heaven in vastly different ways. If you remember your Old Testament history, Moses, he died on Mount Nebo and was buried by God. Elijah, he never died, did he? He was caught up to heaven without dying. He was raptured, yes, he was raptured in a chariot of fire. And I believe this tells us that as believers, we're going to heaven in one of two ways. You can count on that. We're going to heaven in one of two ways, either by death or by rapture. Now, if I go to heaven by death, that's okay. That's not my choice. That's not what I want, but that's okay. If I could have it my way, I would rather go by rapture. You know, the upper taker is much more appealing to me than the undertaker. (laughs) I'd rather Jesus get me than Russell. But either way, whether by death or by rapture, we will go immediately to be with the Lord. You know, I love what Paul says in the book of Philippians, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The moment we close our eyes down here in death, at that very moment, We'll open our eyes in glory, and we will see him who died for us. As we've sung, we will fall down, 
and we will worship him. What Moses and Elijah are doing on that mountain is very significant. They're talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? Well, you know, Mark doesn't tell us. You have to go to one of the other synoptic gospels. You have to go to Luke, and Dr. Luke tells us exactly what they were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And, of course, the word departure, it means exodus, and it refers to the death of Jesus. Well, see, Pete, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they were in this deep com- conversation about his upcoming death on the cross, about what his death would accomplish for sinners. You know, the cross was a tremendous accomplishment. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer was president of Dallas Seminary. He was the first president of the seminary, and he also taught theology in the early years there of the seminary for many, many years. He wrote a multi-volume theology, and I have it in my library. And in that theology, he names 40 benefits of Christ's death, 40 accomplishments of Christ's death, 40 benefits. I wish we had time. Maybe sometime I'll do a series on that. We'd be here at 4 o'clock if I did that, okay? But just imagine the benefits of Christ's death on the cross. The benefits of Jesus were vast. And my friend, the cross was no accident. The cross was planned by God before the world began. I love what Revelation 13, 8 says. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain before the foundation of the world. God had that planned in the eons of eternity when the Trinity counseled together and planned this great salvation of ours. Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, declares that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was all planned in eternity past. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Well, see, the cross is God's plan to save sinners. God's only plan. There's none other. Folks, there's no other plan. In spite of what you might hear from others, there's no other plan. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love that old hymn. I must needs come home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. No other way. If you don't come to God by way of the cross, you will never get there. On the cross, Jesus paid for our salvation in full. Nothing more needs to be done or could be done other than what Christ has already accomplished for us on that cross. Peter, James, and John, well, they were terrified by what they saw. It says Peter didn't know what to say. I'm sure you've heard there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And that was Peter. (laughs) He had to say something. He always had to get a word in edgewise. 
he was always putting his foot in his mouth. And, and he speaks up in verse, verse 5. He says, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter says, man, this is great. Man, this is great. Lord, let, let's just stay up here for all eternity. Let's just spend eternity basking in your glory. Let the kingdom begin. Let the kingdom begin. You know, I'm glad Jesus didn't take Peter up on that. We can all be thankful that Jesus didn't take Peter up on that. If he had taken Peter up on that, there would be no cross. If he'd have stayed up there, there would be no salvation. We would still be in our sins if Jesus had stayed up there and not come to the cross. If he'd have taken the crown without the cross. Oh, here we see the glory of the Son of God, but... Next, I want us to listen to the voice of the Father here. God interrupted Peter in the middle of his little speech. Uh, th- this cloud enveloped them, and no doubt it was the Shekinah glory cloud, the same glory cloud that led Israel through the wilderness, the same glory cloud that filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple. Out of the cloud came the voice of the Father. This wasn't the first time the Father spoke about Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his baptism, God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now here, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, God spoke again from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Hear him. See, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, The Father voiced his approval of the Son. And here at the very end of Jesus' ministry, the Father once again gives his approval of the ministry of the Son and the person of the Son. Father is saying, I approve of him. I approved of him then, and I approve of him now. What the Father is doing is making much of his Son. He's making much of Jesus. He is calling upon all of us to glorify him. That's what we ought to be doing this morning. This morning we ought to be making much of Jesus. We ought to be worshiping him, glorifying him. We ought to be, oh, just so thankful for what he has done for us. When a moment... Our text tells us the cloud passed away. Moses and Elijah went back to heaven. Only Jesus was there. And, you know, I just love that thought, only Jesus. You know, when you really think about it, that's all we need, isn't it? Only Jesus. I'm not saying we don't need the church. I'm not saying we we don't need the Bible. But Jesus is sufficient. (laughs) Jesus is enough. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, you are complete in him. That just simply means he's enough. He's enough. See, Peter, James, and John, they came off the mountain, and Jesus was there. Listen, when you come off the mountaintop, when you come off of one of those great experiences in your Christian life, Jesus is there. 
but also when you walk down that deep, dark valley, Jesus is still there. Oh, I love what the psalmist says. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. See, he's with us in the good times. He's with us in the bad times. He is always there. His promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. Oh, my friend, I don't know what you might be going through this very minute. But Jesus promises to be with you, to be there. And so he's there when you get that medical diagnosis. He's, he's there when you get that dreaded late night phone call. He is there when you feel like your world is just crashing down around you. He is there. When everyone else goes away, he's there. Just look at that word transfigured once again. It also pictures what God is doing in us as believers, followers of Christ. God is transfiguring us. He is transforming. He's changing us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. It is a lifelong process. It is the process that the Spirit of God changes us and conforms us into the image of his son. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 tells us how God is doing that. I'm reading from the New ASV, New American Standard Version. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You know what that is telling us, folks? That's telling us that the Spirit of God who indwells us, who, who lives within your body and mine as believers, the Spirit of God is using the Word of God. Well, see, when we study the Word of God and obey the Word of God, we are seeing the glory of God reflected through His Word. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. And it's a lifelong process. But that's what God is determined to do for you and to me. We saw that in Romans chapter 8. That it is the purpose, it is the, it is the determination of, of God to conform us to the image of his son. And that's what he's doing in your life and my life right now. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a short story in the 19th century entitled The Great Stone Face. It's a story about a mountain overlooking a village. And on that mountain was carved in stone the face of a man. The legend was that one day a man with that face would come and visit the village and be a blessing to all of the people in the village. There was a boy by the name of Ernest, and he heard that legend all of his life, and he longed for that man to come, and he would spend hours just gazing and gazing and gazing at that great stone face, thinking about all the ways that man would bring blessing to the people of the village. 
Often rumors would circulate that someone with the face resembling the great stone face had come to the village and, and Ernest would rush down to see if it were true, only to be disappointed time after time. As Ernest grew older, he continued to gaze at the great stone face. And he became an incredible blessing to all the villagers in that town. One day, a man was walking with Ernest. And as he looked at Ernest's face and then looked up at the mountain, he realized that Ernest's face had become like the great stone face. And with great joy, the man shouted, Ernest is the one. The great stone face has finally come. Don't you see, Ernest had become like the one he beheld. You know, this story is just a legend, of course. But it illustrates a wonderful truth of Scripture. The more we behold Christ in His Word, the Spirit of God will make us more and more like Jesus Christ. As Paul says, from one degree of glory to the other. One day, the Spirit's work is going to be complete. And we will be completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. No, not like him in deity, of course, but like him in character. And like him in behavior. On that day, we will be like him, John says, for we will see him as he really is. One day, we will share what the disciples did on that holy mountain. And see what the disciples got just a glimpse of, a brief moment on the mountain. We will, jo- we will enjoy for all eternity because we will have all eternity to bow down to the one and glorify the one who died for us. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth, this wonderful passage. We thank you so much that we see a glimpse of the glory of Christ in this wonderful transfiguration like nowhere else in Scripture. And just the thought that one day we will stand in his presence bowing down to him Sharing that glory is just beyond our understanding. But we thank you, dear Lord, that even today, you're doing a work in our lives by your Holy Spirit, making us more and more like the Savior. And we thank you for that. Heavenly Father, I... I do pray for any in here today who might not know Christ. They might know about Him. 
They might know the stories of the Bible, but they've never entered into a personal relationship with Him. Lord, I pray that they might trust Him today. And dear Lord, for those of us who know Him, Lord, help us to become more like Him day by day. For we pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.